1: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a market market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you, especially on tough days like today. So why don't you give me a call, 1-800-743-CNBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If you find yourself scratching your head at this action, a sharp sell off after the Federal Reserve told us they'd keep interest rates low yesterday, Dow ultimately dipping 153 points, SB lost 1.48%, but the NASDAQ dropped more than 3%, <laughs> allow me to explain. Low interest rates are supposed to be good for stocks, but they're not good for all stocks. The real winners are the industrials, because they make more money when the economy is roaring. And the banks, because low short-term rates coupled with higher long-term rates, are nirvana for the profits for the financial industry. Meanwhile, the growth stocks, well, let me just say they are getting annihilated, especially tech, because they're all about the future earnings stream many years down the road. And those earnings, well, let's just say they are worth a lot less in a world with lower rates and higher inflation. And that is the world that many of the big-time investors now think we've fallen into. So as a pro who has seen this happen, frankly, a gazillion times, let me explain how all this Fed, inflation, bond, rates deal works when it comes to your portfolio. At any given time, you've got tons of money managers chasing the hottest of the stocks, right? That's what we all do, right? We chase the hottest of the hot. It's instinctive. Specifically, they want companies that will be able to deliver the biggest year-over-year earnings beats without as much risk of an earnings screw-up. So for years, that meant buying FANG, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. But when the economy heats up, these consistent, great, high-speed growers cannot compete with the boom and bust names like the old-school industrials that generate gigantic upside surprises. You know what? They never can. It's like clockwork that the FANGs get sold. You just might not be paying attention to it because ultimately they come back. But this is like the... 20th time I saw other people in the network say it's, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. OK, well, they're dead for now. They're like, uh, you know, dogs that roll over and play dead. Normally, when business speeds up like this, you'd expect the Federal Reserve to tap the brakes by raising interest rates. But yesterday, Fed Chief Jay Powell vowed not to do that, at least not anytime soon. So the Fed's basically saying party on, industrials, which causes the hedge funds to buy them hand over fast. But problem is, if they want to buy the banks or the smokestack stocks, well, they don't have a lot of money just sitting there. They need to sell something. So what are they dumping? The high-growth tech stocks that they always dump. And that's called the hedge fund playbook. But even for a sector rotation, this one does feel a little severe. Why? Supply and demand. Our country has created trillions of dollars worth of tech stocks. They're being printed like Confederate dollars, and a lot of the SPACs are Confederate dollars. Well, they seem like it. It makes sense, because uh, what works in a stagnant economy is to own tech. And we've had decades of stagnation after the financial crisis. Meanwhile, there's been virtually no new issuance for the banks or the industrial stocks. In fact, those companies have been aggressively buying back their own shares for ages or merging and wiping out whole companies that might have been bought at this very moment. So when demand spikes, there's just not enough actual supply of this kind of stock to go around. So the stock goes higher until sellers come out. And even here, even after these big rallies, there's still not a lot of sellers in the industrials. How am I? Well, let me give you how, how, how much it matters. I used to be a trader. I mean, based on my experience, I think you could actually push a Dow stock like like Caterpillar. I bet you, you could jump that stock three or four bucks if you bought a million shares. $231 million. That's nothing for these big money measures. That's right. $231 million. Uh, it would take multiple billions of dollars of buying power to generate a single point move up right now in any of the larger tech stocks that you might own. Most of those tech stocks, by the way, are net issuers of stock, meaning they're adding new supply, even at a time when demand's drying up. No buybacks here. Keep moving. Keep moving. So when will this rotation end? That's what we all want to know, right? When do we know it'll be safe to, uh, to circle back? First of all, it will be safe. There's a lot of people say it'll never be safe. I listen to those people and I say, God, I wish I didn't have two ears. But I do. Here's what has to happen. Yesterday, Jay Powell made a real controversial claim when he explained his decision to keep the easy money flowing. He acknowledged that there is inflation building in the system. He even argued it's going to get worse, so get ready. But then he said it's transitory, so there was no need for the Fed to take action. People laughed at this man. As I mentioned last night, lots of older investors, especially bond investors, think that Powell's lost his mind. Between his rampant commodity price increases and the stimulus checks that are about to hit, well, they're worried about inflation. They're trying to figure out what's with this guy. I thought he was one of us. He's not. Jay Powell is a new breed of Fed chief. We've still got six percent plus unemployment and entire industries have been devastated by the pandemic. Many minority groups shut out from whatever recovery you think we're having. So he thinks it's nuts to talk about tightening now. And that's what he said. OK, those are his words as far. We didn't use the word nuts. I use that because that's like my old way that I like to do it. They know nothing! They know nothing! This guy knows something. Powell knows something. As far as Powell's concerned, it's better to trade higher inflation for lower unemployment, at least the economy's in much better shape. I think he's right. And not just because the Federal Reserve has a terrible history of moving too quickly to fight inflation that turns out to be transitory. Powell made that mistake himself at the end of 2018. His predecessor, Janet Yellen, did the same thing in late 2015. Yet these tight money types on Wall Street, the real rich ones never seem to recognize the cost of rate hike to the average person in the country. Higher, yeah, you get to save a little more, I know that, but it's about jobs. Higher rates are bad for the economy. Powell doesn't want us to take that hit if we don't have to. He doesn't want his legacy to be botched in the recovery, get more people laid off. He, he done after he acted so aggressively last year to keep the economy from crashing, and he was so right, so good. He was second-guessed at that time. You know, the S&P dropped 500, just me 500. It dropped 12% when he slashed rates. The, the, the Sunday night, he came in, the market dropped 12%. He was more worried than everyone else that this could be a terrible time for the economy. He was right, and it also was a good time to buy. The sellers were wrong then. And you know what? I think they're going to be wrong again. Maybe not tomorrow, but let me hear you reasons. First, don't look now, but the biggest source of inflation, oil, is, I don't know if you've seen it, it is rolling over big time. I wouldn't get near that thing. Who needs a rate hike when crude's down five bucks today? I think the Saudis took the price up. Now they're letting loose, putting more production in. Nothing to do with the Fed, though, right? He couldn't do that. Jake can't get that done. Second, a lot of this inflation is actually caused by weather-related shortages, but we just haven't covered the storm right. We've got severe shortage in every single kind of plastic, that whole polyethyl thing. So producers are jacking up prices. However, that's not a systemic issue. Superstorm Uri knocked out a ton of petrochemical capacity along the Gulf Coast. Our plastics industry, the world's plastics industry, is headquartered in Texas and Louisiana. Something like 30 to 60% of our plastics production has been knocked out by the storm. It's still not come back online. That's not something j Powell can fix by raising rates. It's a problem that will only go away when the capacity comes back. How about lumber? All right, the price of lumber has doubled one year, making housing much more expensive, about $20,000 in a big house. But you know what? A rate hike won't create more trees, no more soil mills. We don't need a higher rate, uh, higher rates to do this. To get lumber costs under control, it's stupid. We need President Biden to pick up the phone and call Justin Trudeau in Canada and tell him we'll scrap our tariffs, let's get a deal going. One phone call between heads of governors, a lot more effective than one rate hike, let alone a bunch of them semiconductors. Once again, a lot of this is a supply chain issue. Yes, supply chain. The world simply doesn't have enough semiconductor plants, something that could take years to fix. But in the meantime, most of that capacity is in Taiwan and South Korea. That means if you really want to get the chips to the U.S., you need to send them by sea. But right now we've got a major labor shortage in our ports. So this darn parts are stuck in the ports. Rate hikes won't fix that problem either. We either need to send these chips by air or solve the darn port problem. When it comes to semiconductor shortage, Pal could do more as a longshoreman than he can do as a Fed chief but on no, Door hooks. This issue will go away when commercial flights return and ships go into the cargo holds. That is how they're shipped, by the way. I go on one. Copper. Okay, well, the yeah, Chilentons are putting out more. Peru just said it. Arizona, too. Paint. Key ingredients that are offline are about to come online. Bond vigilantes are freaking out about all these commodities, but nearly all of them can come down in price rapidly once we fix the supply situation. That will make you feel like a dope for dumping your bonds or tech stocks, for that matter. Bottom line, I think Jay Pal's right to focus more on full employment than low inflation. But more important, I bet he'll be right about the transient nature of the commodity price increases because he's smarter than everybody else about this stuff. He's actually done a lot more work. I'm kind of impressed. But I mean, you know, I mean, how can you not be? Didn't come out right. Wall Street freaked out last year when Powell cut rates aggressively. And they're freaking out again now that he's decided to keep lates too, to them too low. All right, you know what I think's going to happen? Listen, Wall Street, he's going to go two for two. And the sellers who feel smug selling their tech growth stocks right now, they're going to go 0 for 2 and get steamrolled. Good riddance. Bean in Missouri. Bean.
2: Booyah, Jim. Booyah. So, Jim, I'm mostly interested in stocks as
3: long term investments, but my boyfriend is more of a day trader. And for months I've been trying to tell him that he needs to buy Disney and hold it.
0: So, I need your expert opinion.
1: Well, you should have news- you, you should have broken up with him. I mean, the stock just had a 50 point move. I think you gotta start rethinking in your whole Again, didn't come out right. I gotta get more. Politically correct, I think that you guys have to work this out together, right? But in the end, every time that Disney dips, you just got to hound them and hound them because it's a great stock and Jay Powell is a great venture. And I mean that. I'm not kidding. I know I'm the most sincerely sincere man in North America, but this guy is the real deal. And I think he's making the right moves. And I think ultimately not tomorrow, the sellers are going to be proven wrong. And inflation is going to be proven transitory. Well, man, tonight, looking for a way to get into the buzzy EV space without all the unknowns. I'm sitting down with the CEO of Magna International to find out if we can do the trick. Then the stay-at-home trend has continued to boost sales at Williams-Sonoma. Sit down with the CEO after those earnings. And a SPAC player that hopes to solve America's problem with produce. I have the exclusive with App Harvest. So stay with Kramer.
4: Don't miss a second of Mad Money.
1: The smokestack stocks have been roaring lately. Many of them have a lot more room to run, in my opinion. Look at Magna International, a company that makes all sorts of complicated car parts and also assembles complete vehicles for the major automakers. Now we know Magna's business is booming right now. There's a fabulous bull market in autos, and the company reported a phenomenal quarter last month. On top of that, you also got the big electric vehicle kicker. Remember, Magna is the company that Fisker, the aspiring Tesla rival, chose to partner with to make their electric SUV. When it came on the show, they talked about it. Most important, while the stock's up more than twenty. 20- 250% over the last year. That's right, 250. It's still just selling for a ridiculously low 12 times earnings. It seems like a steal. Don't take it from me. Let's think deeper. New guest, Swami Katagiri. And Mr. Katagiri is the new CEO of Magnet International. Get a better read on where his company's headed. Mr. Katagiri, welcome to Mad Money.
2: Oh, great to be on the show, Jim. Uh, nice to be on the show. Thank you for the kind words.
1: Well, first, one I've got to tell you, I've been thinking a lot about your company because All of your work and all your documents make it clear, it is a technology company that helps mobility. It's a mobility tech company. Why are people having such a hard time realizing that you are not the old car parts assembler of our different era?
2: I could have summarized it better, uh, Jim. Uh, I think Magna is, I like to call it, a $40 billion startup with a 60-year history Uh, And we are really getting started because we are in an industry that is really high-tech and complex and has an addressable market of $3 trillion and going going forward still. Uh, As we look at the product portfolio, uh, it's really broad, but we have a market leadership position in most of the products that we are present in. The uniqueness of Magna really is besides the system knowledge we have in all the products, we engineer and manufacture full vehicles. Uh, that, that's the uniqueness. And uh, with the mobility changing to service and all the disruptions that we are happening, uh, that are happening in the industry, I think we're just getting started.
1: Okay, Swami, let me ask this in a kind of funny way. A lot of people say when you have a party, you can't have enough ice. You have too much ice. You literally have so much internal combustible engine. I think it actually camouflages all you're doing with these new technologies.
2: I, I'm glad you asked the question, Jim. We can clarify that a little bit. Uh, We are actually agnostic to propulsion system. Uh, Think of a car, doesn't matter whether you have ice or hydrogen or EV or anything else, you still need to have a body and chassis and lights and actuators and seats and so on and so forth. 70 to 80% of our company is that product. And you know what? We have market leadership position in most of those products. We generate really good cash if you look at the last three years. Uh, The results speak for themselves, right? We generated about $5.8 billion in cash, invested about $4 billion back into the business. And this is what sets us up to be able to invest into the future. And if you have seen the next three years, we continue the performance in a similar way. So I think this actually helps us to lay the foundation and lean forward in EVs and autonomous and mobility as a service. So we are really ice agnostic.
1: No, oh, you're right. You've got the best balance sheet of an industry that apparently, apparently, a lot of times they end up. I see companies raising money. and didn't even know they needed the money. Now, here's one for you that I think is is a little controversial. You seem to be the only company in your industry that has a handle on commodity costs. You did not talk about how the supply chain is worrisome for you, whether it be plastic, whether it be semiconductors. Is that because, and this is what I always thought of you as, you're the best sourcer of parts, and chips, and plastic, or whatever's needed, including aluminum, of any company on Earth.
2: Uh, Jim, uh, I think a lot of credit really goes to the resilience of the management team and the employee base, right? I mean, we have the same bumps as everybody else in the industry, but we have been able to get through it with the cooperation of the uh, Tier 1 suppliers, our suppliers, I mean, and the customers working together. Look, we we had to get through the bumps of the resin because of what's happening in Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had the same issues with the uh, semiconductor chips. But, you know, touch wood till now, we have been able to get through it. Uh, Really, the foundation of Magna is operational excellence. And uh, that stood us, uh, stood by us as we get through some of these bumps today.
1: Now, you obviously, uh, we had uh, Mr. Fisker on. He he could not have been more... That's one of the reasons why I was so thrilled that we could have you on, because Mr. Fisker said, listen, we can deal with everybody. we got to deal with Magna. Magna made us a great deal, and they are not a a customer or supplier. They are a partner. Can you describe what that partnership means for Magna?
2: Uh, Absolutely. I think uh, what we're doing with Fisker is really a great uh, proof point of uh, Magna's capabilities and what we can bring to the table, Jim, Right. Not only do we have uh, the system knowledge and bring a uh, EV architecture, the entire ADAS package, the flexible uh, vehicle architecture, and do the contract vehicle manufacturing and engineering and integration as we work through, uh, you know, Fisker managing the entire value chain with them, right? right. Uh, I think working together at an early stage this way really is capital efficiency. In my viewpoint, we are able to, Uh, get speed to the market. We are able to get the uh, advantages of engineering once and deploying many times. Uh, The differentiation and the customer experience is what you know the OEM in this case Fisker is doing and the rest of the stuff we are able to do behind the scenes and uh, enable mobility.
1: Well, um, it doesn't necessarily preclude you, I presume, from doing business with any, oh, with any other company uh, like that. And I know also, I mean, everyone wants to work with Apple. Apple is never going to say who it's working with. And if you say you're working with Apple, they're going to cut you off. But you, if someone came to, if a big company came to you and said, listen, we want to be your partner, too, you wouldn't have to go to Fisker and say, I'm sorry, we can't do, we, we, we have to cut you off. Or you, or you can't say to any other company that comes in, we're already working with Fisker, we can't work with you.
2: Uh, doing contract vehicle manufacturing and engineering is not new to us at all, Jim. As you know, we built over 3.7 million vehicles in our uh, uh, Graz facility, uh, over 30 models. So that's you know, only one aspect of it. And we have done it with different OEMs and you know, uh, recently we just launched the ArcFox in our joint venture in China. And I've always said before, if there is the right business case and the right partner, Uh, we would get the footprint to North America too. So there is no constraints uh, from Fisker or anybody else. Uh, So this is a model that we have had in the past and uh, we are really looking forward with many other discussions, right? There's many uh, established OEMs as well as the new entrants that are, uh, you know, bringing us to the table. Excellent.
1: Well, look, I'm so glad you came to the show. You're just such a fabulous company. I've revered you guys from when I was at Goldman in the 80s. were The only one that I ever felt safe to recommend in a whole sector. Great job. That is Swami Kotagiri. Now, he is the new CEO of Magna. Really great to meet you, sir. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Jim. I appreciate
1: it. You want you want EV, you want autonomous driving, you want someone to understand the supply chain, you want to be affiliated with an outfit like Fisker. Lower risk, better reward. Magna, Mad money's back into the brink.
4: Coming up, can this company spiff up your living space and wallpaper your portfolio with profits? Kramer talks with William Sonoma in style, next.
0: The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now...
6: It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card.
1: Well, it's great to have the best on a bad day. I'm talking about Williams Sonoma. This thing won't quit. The home goods retailer surging 18% in wake of a simply phenomenal quarter last night. Now, for months, I've been urging you to look for companies that made a fortune during the pandemic, but more important, can keep thriving once the world goes back to normal. And I've been saying over and over again, it's going to be Williams-Sonoma. Why? Because they always knew e-commerce, even before the pandemic. They were the brick and mortar outfit that got it because they led with e-commerce. They didn't have to do some crazy pivot. And now we see what's happened. They're taking share, taking names, making fortunes, and getting stronger. So could this one even have more room to run? Like I told people all day today, <laughs> anyone who would listen, let's check in with Laura Albert, the president and CEO of Williams-Sonoma, to get a clearer picture of the quarter and what's going on. Ms. Albert. first of all, congratulations. These numbers were extraordinary. And welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you. Thanks, Jim, for having me. Well, Laura, I've got to tell you, you kind of told people how to do it. You have to have an in-house design capability. You have to have a digital first strategy. And the one that I know no one can replicate, Laura, because I know you, you have to have values. And it seems like it's I'm going to start with the third one, because that's the hardest one to understand for price to uh, price to whatever you want to call it. But sustainability, diversity, equality, inclusion. I think that's as much behind the numbers as the fact that, you know, e-commerce.
7: Well, thank you. And we do, too. And, you know, clearly our customers are saying the same thing and our employees um, satisfaction has never been higher. And this was really a year that I think we all clarified our values and what was going to be important and you know where we were gonna stick our necks out. And I'm so glad we made the decisions we did to pay our people and take care of them and be a closer team. It's amazing that you know we got closer, even though we were on Zoom the whole time and had all these calls. I remember it was almost every day for a while that we got together. And you know, together we faced all the terrible events of this year too that you know have been going on too long. And we said, you know, we can make a difference. And so we put together our internal equity action plan to make sure that we're addressing what we can address and then also influencing our communities. And we've made some progress. There's still a lot more to do in that front, but we're making great progress. In terms of sustainability, You know, people care about how their products is, are made and they may even be willing to spend a little bit more. But what's fascinating about this journey for us is when we started, organic cotton was a lot more expensive than it is today. And because people like us who had buying power mm-hmm. bought it, the prices come down. And so now, you know, we're hitting our goals for 100 percent sustainable cotton and a lot more sustainable wood. And coming up on Earth Day, we're going to make another great announcement that I'm looking forward to about reducing our carbon footprint. So a lot of good stuff happening. And, you know, uh, as Mark Benioff says, values create value. And I believe that strongly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I texted him the moment I saw the numbers and he said, well, what did you think? <laughs> He's, a little jealous, by the way, because that software and service group stocks that they have, even though they're in the Dow, they're not doing as well right now. You, on the other hand, were able to see, I think people must have been betting against you. There was an 8% short position. And I think there are a lot of people who felt like, you know what, they did well because of the pandemic. Did they not see the different things that you did during this period? For instance, the flagship, William sonoma I never thought that had this, this level of growth in it. What did you do inside the brick and mortar that gave you numbers that you didn't, that you didn't have in the 80s?
7: Yeah, I just say,
1: first of all, thank you for
7: supporting this story before it was obvious. And there's still a long runway ahead, Jim. I mean, these brands are not that big. They sort of shoot above their weight in terms of what you think of them. But then when you actually look at the size, I mean, West Elm, it's not even 2 billion yet. When you think about, you know, the total company scale and our market cap and and you look at even a, you know, relative 7.5% growth, we'll be at 10 billion in five years. The Williams-Sonoma namesake, you're absolutely right, we spent a lot of time on that, pivoting to a content-led strategy, a strategy where we encouraged you know, millennials to cook and we got a lot more clear about those food trends and how to attract people in that age group. And once people learn how to cook, I mean, you keep cooking, it's right. fun, very satisfying to feed the people you love and your friends. And it's, it's, um, it's something that doesn't go away once you learn to do it. So we're gonna see that continue. But then also just from a strategy perspective, we shifted to a lot more exclusive, exclusive product that you can't buy elsewhere. And that really gives us pricing power. We knew that from our other brands, but it's been a concerted effort for the last five years to take that percentage way up. And we continue to see room to do an even better job there.
1: Yes, I regard it as being, well, you you talk about it as being a value, quality, but I think scarcity is the word I come up with. There's no, there's just scarcity of everything you make because nobody makes anything as good as you do. Let's talk about that $10 billion run rate. I was looking at, uh, people were saying, Jim, how can you still like eating up 28? And I said, well, I'll tell you why, because there's an outfit called Wayfair. They, they, When they're doing $10 billion, they have a $34 billion market cap with $14 billion in sales. And frankly, I don't think that stuff is all those things that we're talking about in terms of engineering and quality and values. And you're $12 billion. It really doesn't make sense. And I can tell which one's undervalued. The one that has sustainability and the one that has belief systems. Because you have a belief system that is easily accessible to anybody who wants to buy things. I don't think you hide it. I think you show it. And we want you to win. This is a big thing. You are a purpose-driven company and people sense that when they go to your site or when they go to your stores. Well,
7: thank you for saying that. You know, we're going to just keep Focused on that, and our, our people are pushing us, and we love it. Um, and you're right, when you look at the scale of our business, I mean, if you say, okay, could we have 3% market cap? Well, I mean, 3% market share sure. in the home industry, global home industries business 3% market share, 20 billion. So you can do the math and guess, you know, if you believe the story, which I know you do, and I definitely do about our growth initiatives and our differentiation points and the macro that supports it, we got a lot more room to grow. And that's why
1: no promotions, which I love. I do love the seasonal stuff you're doing. I didn't know that you could do it that you could pivot like that. So we're doing Easter stuff and you're making good money on it.
7: Yeah. I mean, imagine we can't wait till people get vaccinated and we can invite our friends and family back into our homes and cook for them and have a cocktail party. Can you imagine those parties in the fall if we get to do that, what they're gonna be like? And we're gonna be right there. We have some of the most inspiring product um, assortments coming for the holidays. And Easter, you know, is off to a great start. And that's always a very important indicator. And I I think more people are gonna be able to celebrate Easter together this year. But let's wait till the fall. Can you okay. imagine?
1: Right, one last question: How about your people coming back into the stores? That vaccinate them. Going to help. What are you re- requiring of people? And, and how can you get the stores fully staffed like they were?
7: We, I mean, our, our people never left, so they're they're there and they're totally motivated. And we're taking as good a care of them as we as we can. In terms of vaccination, we're hoping people get vaccinated, both our customers and our employees. And we're giving them a little incentive to do that. But, you know, honestly, um, the store traffic's coming back. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is last year, unfortunately, yesterday was the day we closed and oh. we closed until the beginning of May closed stores closed. So traffic was coming back. We're looking at how do we comp 2019? Cause right. you can't look at 2020 because it's stores were closed during this period. I think people don't, realize the upside we have in retail. We talk about e-commerce, and that will be our growth. But this retail recovery is a big
1: part of the story as well. No, that's why the stock is not done going up. Laura Alber, CEO of Williams-Sonoma, best beat, best quarterly beat so far in 2021. Great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you, Jim. Guys, they don't stop when they're going like this. This is a major re-rating. Look at what happened with Lennar yesterday. It wasn't a housing company, it's a tech company. This is an e-commerce company par excellence with values. It's not done. That money's back after the break.
4: Coming up, could indoor farming reap outsized profits?
1: Kramer sits down with App Harvest next. When the SPAC attack started turning into a panic retreat about three weeks ago, I gave you a shopping list: ten of the highest quality SPACs that you could justify buying on the way down, and why. Now that the whole group is down big from its highs, we're circling back to the most intriguing stories, like we said we would. So let's talk about App Harvest, it's the cutting-edge agricultural technology that's building some of the world's largest indoor farms in Appalachia. Think giant greenhouses designed around sustainability—issues we care about here on Mad Money. It's an intriguing story. They're trying to turn Appalachia into an indoor garden for vine crops and leafy greens. But the company's stole in its infancy. Like so many SPAC plays, the stock went crazy, surging to almost $43 a day after App Harvest came public by merging with a special purpose acquisition vehicle. But since then it's come back to earth. It's falling to just under $22 today. So could this be the buying opportunity? Let's check in with Jonathan Webb, the founder and CEO of App Harvest, to learn more about the company and his vision for the future. Mr. Webb, welcome to Man Money.
3: Hey Jim, how you doing? Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, thank you for coming on, Jonathan. Jonathan, you and I both know, because we're growers, we have a broken food system in this country. I think that yep. in particular it's broken for fresh vegetables. We get vegetables that look good, that are chalced with chemicals, that tend to come from Mexico, been away for five, six days, and have very little taste. And nutrition, I don't know. How can that Harvest fix this?
3: Well, Jim, uh, you know, it— <laughs> Unfortunately, not nearly as many people in the media understand this as well as you do. Uh, you know, we, our, our team's certainly been following you and know, know that you grow in your backyard. And, and we encourage every, every American household, go, go plant a garden, the best place to get your, your fresh fruit and vegetables in your backyard. Uh, but yeah, Jim, we, we have a lot of problems with our food system here in the U S. And, and, and the good thing is there's technology we can use. We can build infrastructure and, and we can, you know, recreate a better food system that, that better aligns with people and planet. But, you know, Jim, we have a long way to go. You, you mentioned it in the opening here. You know, we're, we've, we've pushed most of our fruit and vegetable production down to Mexico. Uh, it's being shipped back into the country, setting a week or two weeks on a truck. Um, You have the EPA who it's very difficult for them to track the chemical pesticides being used south of the border we don't know, you know, in many cases, what chemicals are on the fruits and vegetables. And the seeds are genetically modified, not for flavor, not for nutrient density, but for transportation just to get halfway across the country. So you know, we have a long way to go, Jim, but uh, our company is trying to do what we can to, to to build a homegrown food supply here in the U.S. Well, let's talk
1: about the success you've already had. Now, you want to build 12 of what we call controlled environment agriculture uh, more, uh, Sites, but I've got some beautiful, I guess they're junior beefsteaks that I know are better than mine. It's driving me crazy, frankly, because I know mine are fresh, but yours are fresh too. The success you've already had, talk about it, and how actually where you are is a great advantage for the rest of the country.
3: Yeah, a couple things, Jim. One, so on the taste side, we'll we'll throw that to our grower team and Martha Stewart. Martha will be back in, in Kentucky with me on Monday, as will the rest of our, our board, who's been very active and helpful with me. But you know, we we've really deemed this as the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. Uh, Twenty years ago it was renewable energy. You know, ten years ago it was electric vehicles and automotive, and right now it's controlled environment agriculture. We we can use infrastructure and technology to grow fruit and vegetable with ninety percent less water. Uh, do get about 30 times yield per acre and get the harsh chemical pesticides out of the growing practice. You know, but where we're doing it to me is is as important as how we're doing it. Uh, we're doing it here in central Appalachia where we have an abundant amount of rainfall. Five of our last 20 to 25 years on state record in Kentucky have been our wettest. So you look at California drying up and drought stricken, the southwest of the U.S. drying up, you know, Mexico is continuing to have water troubles. Ninety five percent of a fruit and vegetable is water. So we're just packaging up that rainwater here using no chemicals, uh, only filtering it with sand and UV uh, and then growing a good, healthy fruit and vegetable that we can get out to markets within a day drive.
1: Well, look, this is very, very important. Also, I'll tell you how important. I always ask my kids, what what do people what do your friends talk about when they talk about their Robin Hood, whatever? They say, well, you know, Dad, why doesn't Dad ever have a B Corporation on? It was a couple of years ago. I said, "Well, I have A, B. wait, well, I'll give you a C. What? No B corporation, Patagonia, Ben and Jerry. You guys are a legitimate. You look it up. Completely clean. Not a subsidiary B company, B corporation that people can own."
3: Yeah, Jim. I, I our team and our investors, we think this is incredibly important. Not only do we have the B Corp certification. Uh, we're a public benefit corporation where there's only less than, I think, five publicly traded globally. Companies have an obligation to people and planet. You know, if COVID has not taught us that we're all in this together, Jim, then I right. don't know what will. But, you know, we, we're, we think it's not a question of sustainability versus profit. And I had discussions on this earlier today. Profit you know, purpose is leading right now in the yes. world, and the profits following. And it's incredibly important. Yes, we have to have we have to have a fruit and vegetable that compete with dirty agriculture. We got to be able to do mm-hmm. that. But we also are investing in the communities here, investing in high school. What's the ROI on that dollar, Jim? By us investing in high school education, we're developing our talent for the future. Those CEOs that are running Fortune 500s and other CEOs that are that are you know quarterly earning called right, profit right. P- profiteering. You can make the case, Jim, are are they going to be around? Are those companies going to be around in 10 years? And anybody that questions this, look at the coal companies that surrounded me here in eastern Kentucky. Almost every coal company in the U.S. has gone bankrupt. It's all gone. And and instead of looking at how do we transition to to a new economy of energy. So, Jim, we're a public benefit corporation. There's only a handful. Our take is, our position is that 10, 15 years from now, hopefully half of the Fortune 500s will be public benefit Uh corporations. We all have a, an obligation that goes beyond just what our, our core day-to-day business is And that's is how I feel
1: you and I are in total agreement. I love what you're doing. I think everyone should have a seat, you know, in their portfolio, should have room for an app harvest. Jonathan Webb, CEO of App Harvest. It's really great to have you on the show. Thank you. Jim,
3: we'd love to host you down. Thank, you. Anytime. Well,
1: now there I, Thank you. That's where I want to go. Can you imagine? It's heaven for growers like me. And i do not not really a grower. I'm a gardener. But I do make Jim's none better tomato sauce. Just don't tell my wife. I call it that. Mad Bunny's back after the break. Just chill out. Chill Man is in the house! Chill Man be king. The chill man is in the house. He's happy.
4: The lightning round is coming up when Mad Bunny returns.
1: It is time! It's time up. <laughs> <laughs> And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, question. Let's, Let's start with Andrew in Florida. Andrew. Hey, Jim. Long time listener. Glad to be on the show. Okay. So I've been trying to get into cybersecurity. The stock I'm looking at had a run up to about 294, but it's pulled back about 80 points over the last month. My question for you is... Do you think Okta, ticker O K T A, is a buy? I did a program this morning through with theStreet.com, and I said that when stocks are down between 17, 18, 19, 20 percent for the year, and they're great tech stocks, you got to start thinking about buying them. That's Okta. We know that we know the topic is the guy who's been able to do literally. I mean, identity down cold. You need Okta. Uh, in any major enterprise, and I think you should own Okta for yourself. Let's go to Owen in Massachusetts. Owen.
0: Jim, big booyah from Beantown.
4: Yes, uh, man, my, what's up?
0: I'd like to hear something about plug power. I bought in early at a great price, and I see they're having some accounting problems right now, but I really want to hang in there with this one. What do you think?
1: I, I, I actually encourage that. I have gone up and down these accounting issues, and it, frankly, I, do, I think that the auditors... Drop the ball here. I mean, I think that they were doing, this company is doing everything right. Andy Marshall's doing everything right. Somehow the auditors, I don't know, didn't like what they did but because there was no cash that was actually involved and it was just bookkeeping, I'm willing to say this is not nefarious. That's It's bad but it's not nefarious and I believe in the long term green hydrogen fuel case and that is still best played with plug. Shimmy in Florida. Shimmy!
7: Jim, I was able to buy the stock 25% off its highs. It keeps going down, but I'm
3: in it for the own it. Don't trade it. Are you all in with me on Chewy?
1: Have to be. Have to be. Humanization of pets, unbelievable story. Talked to Petco today. Ron Coglin still good. I I think the world of of Christian Peck and Zoetis, uh, Idex, this is part of that. And I know Ryan, you look, I keep expecting Ryan Cohen any day. Going to check off one of my ideas for GameStop. I've given him five great ones. Ryan, call me. I'll give you my my cell right now, but I'm afraid others would get it. Let's go to Dean in Ohio. Dean!
0: Congrats on the 16th, Jim. My stock is the largest
3: industrial gas company in the world, Lindy. by seller hold.
1: Okay, Lindy has been my, uh, what we call the chicken cyclical way to play the hydrogen power. Obviously, as you put it, it's the best, largest industrial gas company. It has been a monster good stock. All these stocks are coming down now. I would encourage you, as we're doing for my travel trust, to buy the stock of Lindy. Let's go to John in Florida, please. John. Jimmy Chill, Yo, chill First, man. I'd like to thank you for all the information and advice you provide on your show. It's allowed me to uh, move up my retirement date a couple years. Oh, there we so, go. Uh, I love that. Thank you very much. I'm calling about a stock I've been invested in for about three years and done very well with. It's uh, a biofuel, GEVO, G-E-V-O. Oh, God, people are asking about that left and right. I got to do a piece on this thing. Lots of people ask me about this stock. Now, it's only like a bit, it's like less than two billion dollars. But we're going to do work on it, and thank you for saying that I, uh, that I accelerated your ability to, have to not have to work as hard as crazily as I am right now, frankly. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round!
4: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, if something seems too good to be true, should you hit the brakes? Kramer's cautioning investors to steer clear of
1: broken promises before they break your heart. All right. Sometimes the story's too good to be true. Witness Lordstown Motors down another 13% today. This is a company I got very excited about, developer of light-duty electric trucks, that's located in a resuscitated GM factory in Lordstown, Ohio. When the company's CEO, Steve Burns, came on the show not that long ago, I was pumped. What could be better than a mothball GM plant being retooled into a factory for electric pickups and vans, new jobs, clean energy? What is not to like? But you never want to let your enthusiasm obscure the facts, which is why we brought Burns on the show to find out how this great concept might also be a great investment. I couldn't ask him how much money Lordstown would make because there's so there's a long, long way from profitability. So I asked him about orders. I thought that was a good tangible sign of early success, right? So here's what he told me in response. I think our average order size is about 500 trucks at a time. And, you know, as, as most of them are signed by the CEOs of these large firms. I don't know. Seems solid, right? You, you think so, right? I do. Orders for hundreds at a time, CEO checkoffs. In retrospect, though, maybe it was all too good to be true. See, last week, a rigorous short-selling firm, I know these guys, put out a brutal report on Lordstown They questioned how the company's really doing alleged that maybe these orders might even be borderline fraudulent. Harsh words. It was incredibly negative. This morning, our own CNBC's Phil LeBeau caught up with Burns in an amazing interview to talk about this order issue, among other things. And, well, we'll, you know what? Look, let me just play the interchange so you can contrast it with what he said on Mad Money about orders. We
3: queried them. We have very robust interest. And that's just what they are. They're letters of interest. You can't do any more of that in this stage. So uh, I don't think anybody thought that we had actual orders. Right. We just that's just not the nature of this
1: business. I guess, well, I'm one of those guys, one of the suckers who thought they had orders. <laughs> I mean, to me, that, it's also a pretty far cry from the hundred thousand reservations, albeit non-binding, that the company had previously touted in a January 2021 press release. And now you can see why the SEC is interested. Look, I got to tell you, I hate this kind of thing. I'll tell you, and it's not just because I, I'm not just about money. Listen to me. I hate it because we need all these electric vehicle companies to succeed. Science tells us it's the only way to trounce the evil of climate change. I think we need millions of charging stations. We need many more successful electric vehicle manufacturers. We need better, faster, cleaner battery technology. I want to be a believer. I want these companies to prove my concerns wrong. For example, look, I was initially skeptical of Fisker, but but then I read about its new car and saw that Bill McDermott, great executive from ServiceNow, joined the board of directors. When I spoke to CEO Henrik Fisker, I, I like the demand picture he traced down. They got a good deal with Magna. We heard, heard about that earlier. Lucid Motors. These guys have developed a luxury sedan, Get you 500 miles on a single charge. It goes into production later this year. I rode in a Lucid Air. I loved it. I mean, the car's a the technological marvel, it, 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 it's killer. So I want to. To know, will you be able to get one or is it already in such demand that it's impossible to get? So why don't we play the tape in this with all this in mind of what CEO Peter Rawlinson told me earlier this week about Lucid?
5: We're nearly sold out of Dream Edition. We've just got a few uh, reservations left
1: uh, and our run of 500 is very nearly sold out. And we've got a very large proportion of our pre-orders for the, the following a grand touring version, and our order book is filling very nicely. Oh, sounds pretty good. (laughs) You know, I'm spitting with a car. I think the guy's a great guy. I think they got a lot going there. But uh, what bugs me after the Lordstown controversy, when I hear this terrific stuff from Lucid, now i got all these nagging doubts. I mean, are those orders money in the bank, or are they merely letters of intent? Are they easily cancelable? Same goes for Fisker. Maybe the reservations at the end are meaningless. We don't want that. There's a big difference between an actual order when cash change hands and a list of companies that might want to buy one, a list of people that are interested, and there's no penalty or little penalty to cancel 25 bucks, say. Look, I am pulling actually for even Lordstown. I hope all those interesting customers place real orders. I want them to come one with a big customer who just took down a thousand vehicles with cold, hard cash. I am very hopeful about Fisker and Lucid. I think there's plenty of demand for non-tesla electric vehicles. But I've learned a second lesson from Lordstown Motors. If a seasoned hand like Burns can so easily dismiss his own notion of what counts as an order, I better start curbing my enthusiasm for the stock even down here. When a CEO starts getting all philosophic about basic terminology, you don't want any part of that story, or at least not until they get their house, no, ride in order. Look, I I always like to say there's a bull market somewhere, and I promise try to find it you just right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer.